0: So we're going to be doing lesson number seven today in the uh, quarterly God's Mission, My Mission, and the title is Mission to My Neighbor. The memory verse is Luke 10, 27, and it reads, He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. We have heard this text many times, and we are to love our neighbor But the standard in this text is as we love ourselves. We're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. What does that mean? We don't do it. (laughs) We don't. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Does it mean do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Does the text mean, if we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, that we have a duty to love ourselves? Yes. Yes. Does it mean that if we don't love ourselves, that we are breaking the law of God?
1: We can't love others. We don't love ourselves.
0: Have you thought about that before? Mm -hmm. You probably thought, if I fail to love others, I'm breaking the law. But how about if you don't love yourself, are you breaking the law? Is love for self and loving self the same as being selfish? No, no, no. What's the difference?
1: It's like you say in the first rule in cypher ward is is staff safety.
0: That's exactly right. So when we ask the question, why is loving self not the same thing as being selfish? Answer the question, well, what is actually love? Love is the principle of giving But not giving anything, it's giving that which is in harmony with God's designs for life. That which is right, good, noble, true, pure, holy. Giving what heals, what restores, what recreates, what builds up, what refreshes, what nurtures. In other words, giving what's necessary to fulfill God's purpose. So you love yourself, giving yourself the things that God has prescribed and blessed in your life for you to maintain your fitness and health.
1: Yes.
0: Functionally, if you love yourself, you don't poison your body with substances that damage the brain impair thinking and destroy one's health and enslaves one to an addiction. If you love yourself, you don't do that. Right? Mm-hmm. right? Right. Right. If you love yourself, you give yourself healthy foods, reasonable exercise, adequate sleep, hydration, mental and spiritual rest, keeping oneself in the best condition for the greatest usefulness possible. And... It means if you love yourself, you ingest into your spirit, into your heart and mind, the word of God, studying his word, meditating and spending time with him and seeking to model yourself after him. If you love yourself, it also means, though, that you're true to yourself. You ever heard that statement, to thine own self be true? It means you don't betray yourself. And what does it mean to betray yourself? It means that if you love yourself, you don't betray yourself, meaning that you do what you already know is right for you to do or to say it another way you don't do what you already know is wrong for you to do which is harmful so it means that you don't give into peer pressure you don't let uh, give into emotional manipulation you don't do something that you know in your judgment is wrong just to keep somebody else happy you're true to yourself if you love yourself you're true so it may be a moral issue like you don't take drugs in order to be accepted by a peer group but it may be a issue that's not a moral issue like you don't adopt a dog from somebody who wants to go away to college if you don't believe that it is appropriate for you to adopt the dog you don't let other people determine what are the right actions for you to take in governance of your life. If you love yourself, you're, do you remember when Jesus' brothers wanted to, him to go to Jerusalem and declare himself? Jesus said, no, you go, I'm gonna wait, go later. So what does it mean to love others like, others like this? If you apply this principle of love to self, what does it mean to love others like this?
1: To be true to others allow
0: them to make their own decisions yes that's excellent yes it means that we seek to use our abilities and resources to bless others to present truth and love but leave them free to bring to bear the principles of God in their life if they don't know it we want to educate them we want to create opportunities for their application and development Uh, but it always does mean we leave people free to reject the truth and suffer the consequences but we remain available to be gracious and bring healing interventions to bear when the consequences lead them to repentance and they want delivery from their choices so one of satan's traps if he can't get good people to choose evil is to overwhelm the good people with worthy and good projects and causes and responsibilities and duties that they forget to love themselves. They stop resting. They overwork. Uh, They burn themselves out and exhaust themselves on good deeds. Thus, we are to live lives of love for God and others, but that requires that we love ourselves in a God-designed way. And so, as, as was being said a moment ago, the first rule of caregiving Whether a parent caring for a child or a nurse or doctor caring for a patient or a child caring for an elderly parent, the first rule is the health of the caregiver. Because if the caregiver loses their health, then they can't provide care to anyone and somebody else will have to care for them. So it's important to step back and establish the baseline requirements for our own health 78 hours of sleep a night, regular. Healthy meals, time for exercise, personal meditation, prayer, Sabbath rest, recreation, recreation, these types of things. If you remember, Jesus, as our Savior and role model, regularly took time away from needy people to sleep, to eat, to spend time with his Father, to rest, to maintain his health. The first paragraph in the lesson says, We all know the text, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Yet our love for God can become superficial if we say that we love God but do not obey him. We think that we love God, but how is is this love demonstrated in in our day-to-day life? Loving God requires full commitment of heart, soul, body, and mind daily. Anyone can say that he or she loves God. Doing it, however, requires conscious effort. What do you think about the sentence in the middle that says, Yet our love for God can become superficial if we say that we love God, but do not obey him. True. Have you heard this idea before? In fact, Jesus said, if you love me, keep or obey my commandments. Jesus said this, didn't he? Yes. Yes. (laughs) So this is a righteous idea. It's absolutely true. Yet, can this truth, this righteous idea, be twisted by the enemy in a way that... People who have love in their heart for God and are seeking to obey become discouraged and ultimately reject God and leave because of their pursuit of obedience. Can it be twisted in a way that is actually not what God wants? Yes. yes. I'm going to present something to you, and I want you to tell me if this scenario is something I'm just making up, a complete fantasy, make-believe, never's happened, or it's so remote, it basically really doesn't occur, or is what I'm gonna to describe to you something that you've actually seen, uh, seen happen or heard of? And then if so, I want you to identify what is the underlying reason this would happen like this? So here's the, here's the scenario. A young person goes to a Christian high school or college for the first time, and while there, they meet Christian friends who share Jesus with them. And the Holy Spirit moves on their heart, and they experience the joy of salvation. They give their heart to Jesus, and they are on fire with love for the Lord. And they start telling everybody about Jesus and and how much He means to them. And they're so so on fire with the Lord, they want to be baptized. So they go to the local church pastor and ask for baptism and share the joy in their heart and their love for Jesus. But the pastor, instead of celebrating their com- conversion and scheduling a baptism, asks them if they if they've accepted the twenty eight fundamental beliefs. <laughs> And whether they've begun to obey God's law. The young person looks confused and admits they haven't heard of the 28 fundamental beliefs. So the pastor goes on to tell them that if they love God, they will obey his commandments. And he shows them Jesus, Jesus' statement, if you love me, you will obey and keep my commandments. And then goes on to tell the young person that there are 28 fundamental beliefs that Jesus expects us to believe and obey. Well, the new convert certainly doesn't want to disappoint Jesus and disobey, so they agree to the baptismal classes and, and learn how to obey. And in the classes, they're told that before they can be baptized, they must absolutely, at a minimum, stop eating pork and shellfish and other unclean meats. But it would be much better if they actually became a vegetarian and give up cheese also. They must stop wearing jewelry. Wedding wings, are, wedding wings are acceptable, but it would really be better not to even wear those. Uh, they must they must stop having the occasional glass of wine with dinner or beer with a ball game. They must absolutely stop their smoking habit, for God would not allow such a filthy habit to go through the cleansing waters of baptism. They must, as a minimum, stop paid employment from Friday se- sunset to Saturday sunset, unless, of course, they work for a he- in the healthcare industry for a corporation that makes billions of dollars. But if they have their own private practice, then they must close their practice on the Sabbath hours. They are also given a a list of traditional rules they must follow during Sabbath hours, like not eating at restaurants, unless, of course, they've got a prepaid voucher that they can use at the restaurant, Mm -hmm. and many other similar rules. They are told they must start paying a faithful tithe of 10% of their pre-tax dollars to the local church and offerings on top of that. And they're taught that sin is breaking any of these rules and and even a whole longer list, uh, and that God keeps an accurate record with an angel following them to write down every mistake they've ever made, and that because of God's love, Jesus died to pay that penalty. And if they confess their sins and ask the payment, then then Jesus' blood will be applied to their account. But if they have a sin that they've forgotten, To to confess, they better confess it quickly because if they commit sin and get hit by a car before they confess it, it will remain on the book and God will one day have to kill them for that sin. After weeks of working hard to obey, of going to indoctrination classes to be told what to think, of being scared out of their love and into a fearful obedience, they are finally baptized. But the joy, the love, the passion for Jesus, the light has gone out. Instead, they live in fear of making a mistake, of doing the, doing, not doing things right, of forgetting something that could be a disobedience and getting them in trouble with God, and they either live a miserable, joyous, legalistic Christianity or they leave the church. Now, is this scenario that I've described complete fantasy, make-believe, it's so remote, it really maybe have only happened if ever to one or two people in the world, or has stuff like this happened that you know about? None
1: of it has anything to do with salvation.
0: But 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 has, does this scenario describe something that has never happened or happens?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Happens. It happens. Yes. It happens. It happens. It's still happening.
0: happening. Yes. Yes. And so, the question then: If this happens, what is the root problem? Why would a, a young person or any person who've come to know Jesus, filled their hearts with love, are passionate to tell about salvation? Why, why would something like this happen to them if they went to a church to be baptized? And I'm not saying every church would do this, but if any church or pastor would do this, why would it happen?
1: That's what they believe. The behavior. <laughs> they want
0: to control the people by fear. They don't. But what is the, what is the, the underlying root problem that causes this to happen?
1: They don't know God.
0: They don't know God. And what's the underlying reason they don't know? Because they claim to have a belief in God. They have a religious system built on it. They have the Bible that they teach. They have a 28 fundamental belief system all supported by Scripture. They have doctoral degrees in studying theos, which is studying God. So, they, but you think, so, so what, why don't they know him if they have all this data and all this research and all this energy putting in?
1: They have the wrong law lens.
0: There right. you go. This is the bottom line, the single root cause. They believe God's law works like Roman law, and therefore, because of that, God is required to use power and punishment. And we have to know what the right rules are, and we have to obey the right rules. And it's all mechanical, legalistic, arbitrary. It's really dysfunctional. So, what does that actually mean, the truth then? To actually obey what Jesus meant. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments or you obey my what's the what's genuine obedience? It's not this other thing I just walked through.
1: Well, the context of that verse is that love one another as I have loved you. And the Father's in me and I in you. And and it says, So obey my command that I give you is this, that you love one another.
0: Okay, so it is a principle of love and in other places in the bible there's this idea of obedience what's this idea of obedience and i like where you're going what you said is exactly right but can we unpack that it means having a heart desire have it in your heart a longing a desire to listen to god to understand to follow to fulfill to please him, to go where he leads, to go away from where he doesn't want you to go, a trust and love for him, love of the Lord your God, and longing to be in positive re- relationship and connection with him, to understand and know him, and to fulfill his purpose. It's like a child who eagerly wants to please mommy and daddy. Now consider this, a child, a mom or dad's out weeding in their garden, and behind them walks up their three-year-old child and the three-year-old sees mommy and daddy pulling up plants and walks up to a tomato plant and pulls it out of the ground and smiles and goes, help daddy?
1: <laughs>
0: now, is, is this child doing this, is this child a rebellious and disobedient child? No. But how is their performance? Mm-hmm. They pulled up a tomato plant, not a weed. Alternatively, you send a 14-year-old son out to weed in the garden and they pull only weeds, but the whole time cursing you under their breath because they can't play on their game station. Which child, the 3-year-old pulling up the tomato plant or the 14-year-old pulling only weeds, which is the obedient child? Which is the one whose heart is right with the parent?
1: The baby 3-year-old.
0: So biblical obedience is having a heart aligned with God Wanting with all of your ability to do what will please God and fulfill his purposes in your life. Biblical obedience is not actually how well you perform the task. It's about how well we long to do what is right, even if we do the wrong thing, like pulling up a tomato plant. Well, we supposed to have been pulling up a weed, if we were doing the best we could and didn't even understand it, and as soon as that child gets old enough to understand the difference, they'll stop pulling tomato plants and start pulling weeds.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because the heart is right. That's the easy part to fix. The harder part to fix is to get the child who's pulling weeds to stop being angry and bitter. That's why the Bible says, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart the heart man looks at the behaviors how well can you perform a task god looks at how much you love in your heart and desire to perform it well sunday's lesson it says in the first paragraph who are we why are we here what happens when we die what is our ultimate fate these are in many ways the most important questions mortal beings beings who know that they are mortal Oysters and chickens are, are too, but they don't know it, can ask. <laughs> and in the Gospel of Luke, someone comes to Jesus with what is in fact, a most crucial question the most crucial question of all. And I thought, well, these are some interesting questions. How would you answer them? Who are we? How would you answer that?:
1: Human beings.
0: We are human beings, okay. And wh- what does that mean? Who human beings are? We are God's creation.
1: Yeah.
0: We are God's creation, but so is a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> know
1: him. Get to know him. Um, created life.
0: Who are we? We are human beings. Yes?
1: Yeah.
0: In- yeah. Intelligent creatures. Yeah. Created? In there you go, created in the image of God to be living repositories of God's living law of love, his character, his methods, the primary operating code upon which God Himself functions, we are to function upon. And we have been given godlike abilities the ability to procreate beings in our image, dominion to govern the planet. Adam was given dominion to govern the planet. Human beings, intelligence, self-determination, capacity for reasoning, thinking, and choosing and acting. We are created to be God's offspring, God's children, his special creation. That's who we are. Why are we here? Why do we exist at all? Because God is love. And God wanted a creation like ours to possess as many of his abilities as a creature could possess, such as being able to procreate and make little beings in our own image and then raise them to share in the joys of life and of God as he raises his intelligent beings to share in the joys in the life in relation with him. He wanted a creation that could share in some of his experiences what it's like to govern in love, what it's like to dumb down your explanations to your small children, or what it's like to love beings you can't even explain things to because they can't comprehend it, like your dog or your cat.
1: <laughs> if God created this earth to have friends, friends people, does that mean there's no other creation out there like us?
0: So there are there's no other creation out there like us. That's correct. With all of these abilities, angels have intelligence, angels can love, angels can reason, angels can be self-determining, but angels are, as far as I know cannot procreate beings in their image. They were never given a dominion to govern. They weren't given a whole a whole or of creation beneath them for them to govern as God governs the universe. So and if Adam and Eve would have remained loyal, they would have had children in a world without sin. And they would have governed this whole planet. And they would have interacted with their children differently than the other creatures on this planet. God and human beings would have had grow, grown in fellowship, intimacy, shared their parenting experiences with each other. Have you considered that? But we're here in a circumstance now that exists on this earth because evil, because Satan, because he was jealous of Jesus and he began lying about God in heaven and lied about God to Adam and Eve. And those lies were believed by Adam and Eve. The circle of love and trust was broken. They became filled with fear and self-centeredness and they had children in their image. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity, born dead, in trespass and sin, born with a terminal condition. That's all of us. But God loved us. Too much to let us die so he sent jesus to take up our terminal condition to cure it to eradicate from humanity the death-causing principle and restore humanity back to god and the and the life-causing principle and through that trust we partake in the victory of christ the holy spirit indwells us it's no longer i live but christ lives in me we are reborn with new motives motives that are harmony with god's kingdom so what happens when we die Sleep. What we call death, not the second death at the end of time. What happens? We sleep. We Christ in the grave. Sleep until Jesus comes
1: again.
0: The, the hardware, body, turns to dust. <laughs> the the breath of life, energy, returns to God who gave it. And the soul, the psyche, the individuality, the software is stored safe with Jesus in heaven on the heavenly servers known as the Lamb's Book of Life waiting for download at the the resurrection of the righteous where individuality is downloaded into upgraded hardware and we live again. Mm. Amen. 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 And what is our ultimate fate? Our ultimate future. It depends on whether you've accepted the remedy to the terminal condition with which we were all born. For those who have partaken of the remedy provided by Jesus, their ultimate future or fate is eternal life. For those who reject The remedy, their ultimate faith is non existence. Fate is non existence. Now, these are my answers to these big, heavy questions. Are my answers the same answers that the godless world is giving? No, no. And what is the result of people answering those questions with what the world tells them? What happens to a person if they believe that they are only a biological accident, the latest evolutionary? change brought about by random forces that they haven't is no creator that they have no purpose there is no future and that the principle of survival the fittest is really what drives adaptation and development and and the strong should really continue to exploit the weak for the benefit of the whole race
1: the- this
0: is what the world is telling people is it any wonder that the world is going into chaos no. the godless philosophy let me tell you is demonic It is a hopeless, discouraging worldview that increases fear, despondency, uh, and people seek to avoid this demoralizing experience by turning to all forms of distraction and entertainment, alcohol, drugs, gaming, movie, venture seeking, all, all purposeless, simply to divert their minds away into momentary pleasures to a from their purposeless and hopeless future. Or they seek to dominate control uh, by uh, taking more money, more power to themselves, and making themselves feel empowered or, or better. Monday's lesson, third paragraph says, sometimes we want answers, but we do not put the work, our, put in the work ourselves to find them. Jesus said, "What is written in the law? How do you read it?" Jesus pointed to, the very, to a very important aspect of learning. Instead of only listening to what others have to tell us. We need to read the Scripture, the Word of God, for ourselves. The answers already are there, and the Holy Spirit works on our hearts to impress upon us what we need to do. This is a a very important truth, Mm -hmm. that all strength, all learning, is a result of personal effort, exertion, and application. Mm -hmm. But often people who want answers, rather than studying for themselves, seek to ask, ask an expert to tell them the answer. Now, let's, 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 let's unpack this. There is certainly a place for teachers, parents, professors, and instructors to instruct or teach the facts, the basic principles, the methods, the protocols, what is actually reality. For without someone to tell us the basics, we wouldn't have anything upon which to problem solve upon. The child wouldn't know the sky is blue or the grass is green if they weren't told. Each one of us needs to be taught some basic facts, design laws, what reality is. But teaching those things is not the same thing, is not the same thing as, as applying those facts to problem, solving problems. And each person must study out and know that the truth is the truth for itself. For instance, there's a difference between knowing the right answer and knowing why it's the right answer. A child, if you ask your child, if a child comes home and says, Mommy, guess what? You go, what? Two plus two is four. And you say to the child, how do you know that? And they say, because the teacher said so.
1: (laughs) That's not good.
0: Now, they've got the right answer, but they still don't know how to solve problems or math problems. And life is a series of problems to be solved. And we need to teach the basic principles or rules, if you will, like mathematical rules, the basic principles of how reality works. But then people have to begin applying them and evaluating the answers and coming to conclusions. And because God's laws are constant, when you understand them, you can apply his laws to your decision-making and evaluate the outcomes, and you become better at problem-solving. But if your approach is... Well, I trust someone else who's got a degree in mathematics to tell me the answer. So let's think about this. And this happens a lot in churches. Well, uh, my professor, my pastor, my, my, my theology professor, they've got a degree. I trust them to tell me what the Bible means. That's true. In relationships, can one, can one person tell you about another person? Yes, Yes, they can. Can one person know another person for you? No. No. Can other people tell you about the facts, principles, and science of buoyancy and the mechanics of swimming? Yes. 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 (laughs) Can another person swim for you? No. No. Can other people describe the nutritional facts about oranges? Can another person enjoy the taste of an orange and absorb the nutrients for you? No. No. See, this is design law. In reality, it's reality. Our God is the God of reality, and no other person can know God for you. No other person can experience salvation for you. No other person can mature and gain wisdom for you. Mm no one can understand reality for you christy got me a t-shirt a long time ago i never wear it because people get upset but but i love the saying and the saying goes i can explain it to you i can't understand it for you
1: mm-hmm. yeah, that, 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 that. a little bit demeaning there
0: isn't that great
1: Anywhere?
0: see people can tell you how to swim but if you want to swim, you got to get in the water yourself.
1: Yeah, that's right. to do that again.
0: <laughs> people can tell you about their joy and love for God that they have, but if you want joy and love for God, you've got to get into a relationship with God yourself. Amen. The problem with the evil systems of this world, Satan's systems, is that it does not, these systems do not want people to develop their God-given abilities and capacities for themselves. What Satan wants and the evil leadership that you will see in this world, and it's extremely active right now, Mm -hmm. what they want is they want people to become mindless, thoughtless drones, Mm -hmm. serfs, slaves, cult followers, dumbed down to simply surrender their thinking to some person in authority to tell them how to live and what to do to obey because someone else has told them that this is the right thing to do. I'm going to read to you two historical quotes, and I want you to think about these and see if you agree with them and what what principles are being taught. The first is is from Medical Missionary, May 1, 1892. Under the guidance and control of the Holy Spirit, the powers of the missionary of the Lord are to be put to their very highest use. It is thus that man may become a laborer together with God. All whom God has endowed with reasoning powers may be may become intellectual Christians. I'm going to pause there. May become. There are many people with intellectual powers who don't become intellectual Christians because they don't apply themselves to understanding God and true Christianity And also, this sentence would suggest, if you haven't been endowed with reasoning powers, you're excused from becoming an intellectual Christian. Only those who have these powers can become an intellectual Christian. God has given abundant evidence of the truth of his word and he requires that those who would be counted as the followers of Christ should study the scriptures that they may be able to give to every man a reason for the hope that is in them with meekness and fear. He has not required that anyone he has not required anyone to believe without evidence. Let the inquire after truth Put to the stretch his mental powers in diligent study of the Word of God. To neglect this duty is to place the soul in peril of eternal death each one is required to understand the conditions upon which eternal life depends. Why? What's the rule? And if you don't, I'm going to hold you accountable. No, it's if you want to know God, you're required to get to know him. No one else can know him for you. If you want to know how to swim, you're required to get in the water. No one else can swim for you. It's required because it's an actual experience that you have to participate in for it to be yours. No one else can taste an orange for you. If you want to know what an orange tastes like, you've got to taste it. No one else can do it. It's a requirement. This is what this means. It's reality. We must know what says the Lord, that we may be able to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We cannot afford to have another subtle questions of such momentous import as those concerning our soul's salvation. We must open the scriptures for ourselves, searching the word of God prayerfully, that we may know the truth as it is in Jesus. We cannot afford to trust to ministers, to follow idle traditions, to subject our souls to human authority, but we must know for ourselves what God has said. We are to be laborers together with God, and we must know, we must be determined to know what are the conditions upon which we may become heirs to salvation. If we neglect this important duty, we shall die in our sins. How much of religion in which you were raised taught you to engage and think and reason and learn and understand for yourself versus indoctrinated you into a system of beliefs knowing the right ones with a series of proof texts? That's how, that's, you know, I was taught a lot of that th- stuff, but, but when I would ask questions as to the reasons why and how it worked and I saw contradictions and things that didn't make sense, there was not a reasoning out. There was an authoritarian command. Well, the Bible said it. And if you have faith, you believe it because that's all there is to it. <laughs> that's a command of authority, the authority of the Bible or the authority of the church or the authority of the red leather books or whatever else. Is there a difference between an ex- External authority granting an external legal declaration over someone, like I declare you're legally pardoned of all of your crimes. That's one thing. Is that is, is that different from someone experiencing a change in the internal operations of their heart? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Most definitely. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Is there a difference in a doctor declaring someone to be cancer-free and the person actually being cancer-free? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Is there a difference in a judge declaring someone free of guilt and the person actually being free of guilt? Is there a difference in a teacher declaring that a student knows how to do calculus and a student actually being able to do calculus? Yeah,
1: for sure.
0: Okay. Understand, penal legal theologies are all about God declaring something to be so that isn't so. They actually say it in their own publication. He declares you to be righteous even though you're unrighteous. It's, ridiculous. it's a big scam. It's a fraud. It's a lie. It's based on a, a lie about God's law, and the whole mechanics of salvation are fraudulent. The true salvation is a new heart and right spirit that we, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 20, become the righteousness of God. We actually have a knowledge of God. We know Him. We experience Him. God is the God of reality, of truth, of what's real. Satan is the father of fantasy, of pretend, of make-believe, of what's imagined, of declaring what is not true to be true. Thus, if we want salvation... We must, in reality, experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who transforms us. We must know God and Jesus for ourselves. So consider this quote. And this quote is from Review and Herald, August 10, 1886. If we get the wisdom of man before us as the wisdom of God, we are led astray by the foolishness of man's wisdom. Pause. Pause. That's saying if you actually believe the human way of thinking and the, and the human way of, of determining right and wrong and what's wise, if you actually think that's how God does things and accept that as God's way, you're being a fool.
1: <laughs>
0: and what is the wisdom of man? Foolish. But, but what is it? What does the world tell you, humankind tell you, determines right and wrong and justice? Justice is holding people accountable. We have imposed laws that we must police, and justice is punishing crime and inflicting punishment, that we can have an orderly society by exerting more might, more power, more force. And then they go on to say, this is God's government. He is ultimately the most powerful, and his laws are always the right ones. And eventually, he's going to hold people accountable, and he's going to kill people in the end for their disobedience unless they accept his payment. And And authority comes with this imposed law view, authority comes from the one with the most power, and therefore we are to surrender our thinking to the one in charge, and we're supposed to follow rules because the rules say so. And that doesn't matter whether it's the pastor, pope, priest, rabbi, cleric, doctor, governor, president, head of the CDC, if the person in charge says to do it, you should obey. If we get the wisdom of man before us as the wisdom of God, we are led astray by the foolishness of man's wisdom. Here is the great danger of many. They have not an experience for themselves. Mm-hmm. They believe what they're told. They have not examined and tested things for themselves and come up to their own conclusions and have comprehension of the, of the true principles of things based on objective reality. Continuing on. They have not been in the habit of prayerfully considering for themselves with unprejudiced, unbiased judgment questions and subjects that are anew, which are liable to arise. They don't examine the questions, the issues, the facts, the testable laws, the merits of the case, the evidence, uh, principles of God. No, they answer questions through biases and assumptions and prejudices of what they have been previously taught through tradition of the church or society and through the imposed law lie. Continuing on, they wait to see what others will think. If they dissent, that is all that is needed. The evidence in their own minds then is positive that it is all of no account whatever. See these groups? They surrender their thinking to others. They replace objective truth and facts with opinions of the scholar, of the theologian, of the pastor, of the subject matter expert, rather than examining for themselves and prayerfully coming to their own conclusion. Now, notice this. This this class is not small, but although their numbers are large, it does not change the fact that they are weak-minded through long yielding to the enemy, inexperienced and will always be as sickly as babes walking by others light living on others experience feeling as others feel acting as others act they act as though they had not an individuality their identity is submerged in others they are mere shadows of others whom they think are right
1: not
0: having spent their lives surrendering their thinking to others, allowing others to tell them the answers. They don't know how to problem solve. They don't know how to differentiate objective facts from claims, opinions and proclamations. They don't know the design laws of God. They know the rules and the rules that you're supposed to do this. And they don't want to get in trouble. And they want to be obedient. And so they listen to the people in charge. And they know what they've been told. They know the doctrines. They know the 28 fundamentals. They know what the media tells them, but they don't have a clue for themselves how to think through a problem to determine what's right or wrong. Notice what the author continues to say. These will all fail of everlasting life unless they become sensible of their wavering character and correct it they will be unable to cope with the perils of the last days they will possess no stamina to resist the devil for they do not know that it is he someone must be at their side to inform them whether a foe whether it is a foe approaching or a friend they don't have ability to discern. The mature of those who develop by practice the ability to discern right from wrong, Hebrews 5:14. These people haven't practiced. They haven't thought. They haven't weighed evidences. They haven't applied themselves to life. They don't know their God-given reasoning capacities and if you don't use it, you lose it. And this is what's being described. Continuing on, they are not spiritual. Therefore, spiritual things are not discerned. They are not wise in those things which relate to the kingdom of God. And the things that relate to the kingdom of God are reality, objective truth, God's design laws. And what they have done is they've accepted fantasy, the fantasy of an imperial legalistic system of an imperial God with imposed rules who's a source of pain. They accept rules. They accept made-up consequences. That's fantasy the belief in a future in which the creator is actually the source of inflicted death rather than the source of life. That's fantasy. This is why they can't tell the difference because they have a fantasy understanding of how reality works. Continuing on. None, young or old, are excusable in trusting to another to have an experience for them. Said the angel, "Cursed be the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his arm a noble self-reliance is needed in the Christian experience and warfare. What are your thoughts on these two quotes? Do you think uh, this person had some insight, knew what they were talking about, or this this is just the opposite? It really is better for us to trust people in charge.
1: This would be like the five foolish virgins.
0: Yes, exactly. They had their lamps. Lamps represent the word of God. Mm-hmm. They had their, their Bible textbooks. No capacity to think and reason to understand.
1: I find it interesting that term noble self-reliance because so often we're taught to be unselfish. But this is saying self-reliance is noble when it comes to understanding things.
0: And the last fruit of the Spirit, so- self-control. God's plan for us is to be self-governed beings created in his image who are exercising the very methods and principles of God as we operate internally on God's living law of love, that we are set free completely. There is no external puppet strings from God controlling our actions. That's not how he works. So how do we have an experience for themselves? So this author says, trusting in another to have an experience for them. How do we have an experience for ourselves? Well, consider this historic quote out of Christian Temperance and Bible Hygiene by the same author. And I want you to to think how you would describe this in maybe modern terms. Experience is said to be the best teacher. Genuine experience is indeed superior to mere theoretical knowledge. But many have an erroneous idea of what constitutes experience. Real experience is gained by a variety of careful experiments made with a mind free from prejudice, uncontrolled by previous established opinions and habits. The results are marked with careful solicitude and an anxious desire to learn, to improve, and to reform on every point that is not in harmony with Physical and moral laws. What is that being described there?
1: Design laws.
0: It is design law, physical, absolutely. And because design laws are constant, this experience, she uses the word careful experiments. This is the scientific method you have a hypothesis, you understand some of the design laws, you have a decision-make, you are not sure yet because you haven't uh, calibrated your decision tree to have certainty on how the law works and all parameters. And so you have careful experiments with a mind made free from prejudices and previous opinions and habits And then you have an eager desire to know exactly how reality functions in god's kingdom and you are careful in your observations to measure the results and outcomes of your decisions and to update your decision tree to move in harmony with how life actually works this is the scientific method and this is also the integrative evidence-based approach to studying scripture or we're harmonizing all the three threads god has given us to understand reality-based understanding of our world the bible and eternity you see god's laws are constant they never change they're very predictable think about the law of liberty you've heard me talk about before you can only have love in an atmosphere of freedom if you threaten to harm people who don't love you You will actually destroy love and incite rebellion, and that is predictable. It happens every time. But Satan, the father of fantasy, fantasy is when we believe things that contradict objective reality. That's a fantasy, is like there are no male and female, or gender is a construct. That is a fantasy. It's a falsehood. It's demonic. It denies objective reality. It's designed to get in your head and get you to believe that objective reality is actually not real. There's this other fantasy way. And the goal of all this is decouple minds from reality because God is the God of reality and get people to live in a fantasy world you know what it's you you know what the magic word is today in the in the demonic purveyors in our society? What? A reimagined world. Oh
1: my gosh.
0: See, if you reimagine it, you're reimagining it. You're take this we know uh, we know uh, historically in all animal species there's males and females. But we want to imagine a world in which gender is fluid and there's male and females just a construct. We want to imagine that. That's fantasy, folks. Yeah. Fantasy. It's not real. Not real. <laughs> Last weekend
1: I heard a really good,
0: interesting sermon that I would I would submit is on the polar opposite of what you teach about reality. And I'm going to say that the the primary word that they focused on was G-R-A-C-E, grace, which has to do ultimately, when you back it all the way up, to what God's declaration is about you. And he supported that by saying, This is what God said about David. Thanks for that, Ken. It says that this idea of a reimagined fantasy way of—I I pointed out how the godless left is doing that now. But the same type of fantasy process, decoupling minds from objective reality, has been done by every religion in the world, including Christianity, when we accept fantasies of, about how God runs His universe. And what Ken was describing is another Christian fantasy. God is gracious and we are saved through God's grace. There's no question about it. But that saving has a real impact. That grace works in us to change and renew us to be like Christ. We become partakers of the divine nature, Peter said. The law is written in our hearts and minds. We become the righteousness of God, Paul writes rather than this other fantasy that you actually remain wicked and unrighteous, but God declares you in some legalistic way through his grace to be righteous when you're not. That's fantasy. Tuesday's lesson, second, uh, the, the first two paragraphs read, the lawyer had asked the question and he himself gave the answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. What was the response of Jesus? He said, you have answered rightly. Jesus went on to challenge him to do something about it by saying, do this and you will live. Is Jesus' instructions, do this and you will live, a rule we must keep in order to avoid getting into legal trouble and executed by the rule-giving judge. Why did Jesus say that if you want to have eternal life, that you must love God and others? Why did he say that?
1: I mean, that's the core of unselfishness, <laughs> unselfish love. We are, we are victims of
0: selfishness. You're exactly right, but the question is, how is that connected to eternal life? It overcomes
1: the mystery of iniquity.
0: <laughs> I'm smiling because the mystery of iniquity is a, a phrase, but, but what does it mean?
1: Know God, get to know Him. Because God is love. <clears throat>
0: So what is the so the question is how is loving God and others connected to receiving eternal life? Is it well if you love God and others you will get an attaboy and God will bless you with eternal life you get it you get a gift you get a reward you get a you get a something or is it what is the basis of life? Love. Where does life originate?
1: God God
0: and God is love and God has built all living organisms to operate. On a certain design protocol and it's the protocol of love and these and this protocol is his law his design template and if you break that design template just like tying a plastic bag over your head breaking the law of respiration the only outcome there is death Mm -hmm. and so the reason he says to love, he's say, be restored into harmony with how I've designed life, and that's how you will receive life. And you can't do that by your own work. You only are restored by be returning to a trust relationship with me, and I work in you to remove the fear and selfishness and write in the principles of love, but you choose to accept that and identify with it. This is a covenant only with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And the law is the law of love, the law of liberty, the law of truth, the law, of God's, God's design laws for life. This is the, the plan of salvation. And this is why the Bible says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving or bringing life to the soul. If you, Jesus is simply saying, if you live in harmony with the laws of life, you have life. And that means you're in harmony with him. And the life of God is again flowing through you. It is sin, fear, selfishness, the breach of love that severs our connection with God and causes death. Restoration of trust or faith based upon the truth results in opening the heart. And when we open the heart, we receive the indwelling spirit who purges the fear and selfishness and strengthens our trust and love in God. And that's what happens. Let's hit this really quick. This is in uh, Lesson Cites, James 2, 17 through 22, and James 2, 17 through 22 says, "'In the same way, faith by itself, "'if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. "'But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. "'Show me your faith without deeds, "'and I will show you my faith by what I do. "'You believe that there is one God, good. "'Even the devils believe that and shudder. "'You foolish man. "'Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was what was made complete by what he did. You ever heard tension about faith and works in the church? Martin Luther, the great reformer, rejected the book of James as being inspired. He did not accept it as an inspired book of the Bible. In, the, in his version of the Bible, there were 62 inspired books, not 66. James is one of them that he rejected along with Hebrews and along with um, Revelation and, and Jude. He, 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 those four he didn't accept because he because of this passage specifically he thought this made salvation was by faith alone and this added works to it and so he could not accept that this was true so he rejected that and he developed his own theory of salvation called penal substitution theory of salvation that he He created in his own mind for the explanation to do away with purgatory because the church taught that certain sins, if they were not removed by the time you you died, your soul went to purgatory and those sins where you suffered and were being purged from your soul. So he um, invented the penal substitution idea that all sins, past, present, and future are put on Jesus at the cross and punished there on the cross so that there's no un punish sins to be purged in purgatory and that was his goal to get rid of purgatory but his explanation was still based on the idea that god's law works like human law then sin requires god to punish and so it's a completely flawed explanation So how do we understand this idea what James is saying, faith and works? If you have an imposed law system, you struggle and you will find all kinds of convoluted and silly explanations on this. But if you come back to design law, and that's what I'm gonna close on, this absolutely makes perfect sense. It is simply saying the following. Your faith, faith what you believe. That's what it is. Faith, believe, it's the same Greek root for faith and belief and trust. They all have the same, Greek, same word in the Greek. But it's simply saying this. Believing that it is beneficial to eat a healthy diet does you no good if you eat only junk food. Yeah. <laughs> Believing that, it, that being faithful to one's spouse is right, builds trust and prevents guilt and shame does you no good if you cheat on your spouse. Believing it doesn't do you any good if you cheat. Believing that an antibiotic will cure your pneumonia does you no good if you don't take it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Believing that exercise will make you stronger does you no good if you don't exercise. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Believing in Jesus and believing that salvation is through trust in him does you no good if you don't actually trust him and then follow in trust what he directs you to do. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And that's all it's saying. So when we actually have faith, we actually do what faith informs us is healthy for us to do. And we do it gladly because it makes perfect sense. That's what faith and works go together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the God of truth, the God of reality, the God who uh, is love and who has created the universe to operate on these design principles of of beautiful love, truth, freedom. We ask that your, your spirit will be poured out solidify in our hearts and minds your living law that we can be the living repositories of your character your kingdom here on this earth lights at this time in history that others will see your beauty and be drawn to you that the world will be lighted and you will come soon we pray in your holy name Amen. amen